Theology Thursday, welcome, let's go. Andre Beck, what's going on? It's going all right, bro. What's happening? Is it like midnight? Are we doing a midnight run again? It's getting there. It's getting there. Oh, okay. It's the only way to podcast. We need, yeah, we need we need to get this thing going, bro, a little earlier. Yeah, well, it's just your stupid microphone that's uh, messing us around. <laughs> if, you just, if you just bought Sony the first time, you know, you don't buy phony, buy Sony. First time, bro. First time. I didn't even know if Sony makes microphones, but if they did, it'd be awesome. Yeah. No, I bought a... A newer <laughs> NW7000. Yeah. Well, you, uh, I mean, that was only been getting underwhelming at every level. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> yeah. I know. But hey, it, it looked cool. You know, there's that. It has aesthetic. It's like one of those. Um, I remember back in the day with the big double tape deck, um, you know, and you had the, like, it had a, like, you know, everything, like CD5, 15-disc shuttle CD player, you know, Blu-ray before Blu-ray was invented, <laughs> you know, all for like 199 bucks, you know. <laughs> and it looked like yeah, it was exactly. out of like some Martian spacecraft, you know. And it's just like, uh, you know, with the speakers that are like 13,000 decibels or whatever. And, and then you get home. <laughs> And like nothing works, <laughs> like works yeah, really totally. badly yeah. five times, and then it it's dies. Like, or like if anyone walks across the room, the CDs start to skip. You know, oh, it's man. one of those sorts of vibes. <laughs> do, do you remember? Do you remember when you came back from London with that mini disc player? Yeah, that thing was that 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 was awesome though. It was no, I mean it was great, but like whatever happened to the mini disc? Yeah, player? talk about just something like that. Never. Just, yeah, I know. I was like an influencer for a while there. And, uh, I mean, it was it was amazing quality. I thought, like, uh, I thought, oh, man, this is like the most awesome thing I've ever experienced. And then it's just like no one, no yeah. one, it never hit South Africa at all. I know because you could like tape on it. You could, you know, you could yeah. basically do everything you did with a uh, CD, except you could write it before you could write CDs. And it was pretty awesome, and it's just nice little I, disc, you know, just keep it in your pocket. I guess it just <laughs> coincided with the uh, the mp3 totally you know destroyed and it, yeah. that just kind of killed it yeah but, yeah yeah totally oh man oh, i'm still well. trying to work out what to do with it. i got loads of records bro i'm ah. just trying to work out what to do with it yeah keep them get help get a get a lp player so what are we talking about today we're on theology thursday uh, as much mm-hmm. as i like to talk about minimalizing our lp uh, collection and uh you know, those sorts of things. That's more of a whatever <laughs> yeah. Wednesday topic. And this yeah, time around, time. Chris actually smashed it. We we did like a, a three-part Lutheran Klein Two Kingdom series. And um, and so our whatever Wednesday spot is taken, bro. We got to go straight Dude. to theology. We got to get to the meat. Okay. But All that's right. like a Two Kingdoms Tuesday thing, man. Can't what, be bringing that to my whatever Wednesday. I know. We overflowed into it. We did. <laughs> <laughs> We're taking all the kingdoms. All of the kingdoms are going down. <laughs> uh, Chris, Chris is out yeah. for global domination with these two kingdoms. Uh, see that? That's yeah. right. I'm I, I'm in support of the uh, two kingdoms cause. Uh, yeah. What I was thinking is that uh, there's a couple of other like theological 
things that we drop from time to time mm-hmm. uh, that people may either not be entirely on board with mm-hmm. or or not entirely clear on what it means. Yes. So giving a lot of attention to Two Kingdoms Tuesday uh-huh. and Two Kingdoms stuff, which is now on a Wednesday as well, and, and that's good. <laughs> but um, <laughs> but we, uh, we've we also like mentioned things like cessationism. I know you had that Aussie guy, the continuationist Aussie guy, uh-huh. on to talk about it from a continuous, continu- blah, blah, blah side. But... Uh-huh. Um, well, uh, Aussie guy's name, sh- by the way, is Kylum. I'm seeing him tomorrow. I'm going to Sydney. I'll see him tomorrow. Yeah. So, Chailum. 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 I don't know the guy. I don't know if he finds this deeply offensive or not. But, but <laughs> like, if I he ever is, meet him, I'd be like, Chailum. Chailum. Okay. He's, a, he's, a, he's <laughs> such a legend. Yeah, but anyways. Okay, sorry, you were saying? Yeah, so he's kind of been on and touched on a bit, but I think... At some point, we probably need to go in to talk about the whole continuationist, cessationist. Yeah. Okay, uh, cool. Well, today's Thursday. Let's do that. (laughs) Let's do that. Uh, Yeah. But but the other one, just before I forget, is that sometimes we talk about piousism, and I think Uh, we probably need to nail that down at some point. Big one. Um, Very good. So, uh, yeah, but anyway, let's go with cessationism. Yeah, well, no, those are good, two good suggestions, and that's why they pay you the big bucks, bro. I uh, know, man. Yeah, yep. no, yep. doesn't come That's doesn't why come I cheap. have a Niwa NW7000. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. I For couldn't sure. afford that little snowball thing or whatever it's called. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's, that's like second mortgage territory, that. <laughs> this, is, this, is, this, is, this is podcasting for the strong. Yeah, certainly. Podcasting anyway. for the true, for the faithful. Um, all right, cool. So um, cessationism, right? Um, do you? Mm-hmm. Are you? Uh, yeah, I am. I describe myself as like a light cessationist. What does that mean? <laughs> yeah so, how did that like a that's like driscoll driscoll yeah, well, it's, was it's a, my equivalent of a of a cessationist with a seatbelt yeah so he was a charismatic with the seatbelt you want to you want to use that language do you you want to enter into that rhetoric <laughs> well, I'll, I'll do whatever i want <laughs> when it comes it to defining my own theological position didn't go well for driscoll that's all i'm saying <laughs> Well, yeah, that's because he was on the other side of it, though. Yeah, true that, true that. Um, all right, so, um, yeah. Uh, what do you mean? Why, why do you want to go? Like, what's wrong with hard, full-on, no seatbelt cessationism? What is cessationism? Well, w- yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think that's probably a better point to start it. Yeah. That, uh, okay, so cessationism is the belief that uh, at least some of the gifts have ceased. Mm-hmm. Right? I, I would define it more particularly than that. Of course you would. <laughs> but uh, that's, a, that's a starting point. As a starting okay, point, so, there's a much more simple way to do it, is what I'm saying. And a way that... that, no, that that's, as, that's as simple as it gets, bro. No, Some no, no. There's, there's, I have Hence a better the way. Term, cessationism. No, better way. I've got a better way still. Okay. All right. All right yeah. You ready? Yeah. Article one. Article 1 oh, of no, every major no, confession okay. in the church's history. Article 1. What does it say? The 66 books of the Bible. 
the rest. Mm. I mean, we've ceased to get books of the Bible. That's it. And that's the whole thing. Like the doctrine of cessation historically is just that we don't have, you know, ongoing uh, canonical level authority revelation happening at that level. And what I love to do with anyone that's charismatic is, is, you know, prove to them firstly that they are cessationist, you know, at, at that fundamental historic mm-hmm. level. Um, they, unless of course they believe that, you know, we're, we're still adding to scripture, even if we're not writing it down, if we're saying thus saith the Lord, we're functionally adding, you know, a level of authority to our conscience is not bound to the word alone, essentially. And uh, if fair enough, if they want to go in that direction, well, maybe they're not cessationists. But even then, they probably believe that something is not the same. You know, there, there's something that has changed from the time of the apostles. And I know a lot of people on the crazy side of charismatic theology believe in apostles today, like in the same way and the same kind of miracles. But even then, I mean, something you usually can find something that they will admit has ceased, you know. And at, le- at that level, you know, everyone is 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 sort of moving from that starting point. Much more normally, you talk to people, you know, moderate charismatic, uh, maybe we call them continuationists, just to get them out of that Benny Hinn zone. Um, but, you know, they would typically not want to, you know, add to the canon. They w- wouldn't want to think of what they do as uh, messing around with that. And so ver- are very quick to say, well, you know, no, yeah, the apostles were the apostles and the canon is the canon and nothing we do is in any way what was happening then. And so that has ceased. And when they do that, I just want to point out to them that in every historical sense, that is all cessationism has ever been. So they are, in fact, cessationism, uh, cessationists. Now, the, the, the question then becomes, uh, well, what do we do about this little phenomenon thing that, that's happening with the charismatic renewal? But it's like it's then framed in that in that basic context, which is interesting. It's a different way to approach it than, you know, sort of saying, are you on MacArthur's side or are you on Piper's side? You know, and it's like, do you wear do you wear <laughs> yeah. a tie or do you wear a T-shirt when you preach? You know, that's that's often what it degrades to the, the conversation. Uh, we, we need to keep it in that realm of the, the confessional Protestant heritage, really. Yeah, well, I think that's really important, and mm. it, and every kind of development of the cessation of spiritual gifts is just an attempt to step um, the whole thing. So it is a, a consistent working out of the faith that has been confessed about the the closed canon. Yeah, um, and so you either have to alter the de- definition. Of, in order to allow certain gifts to continue, or you have to alter the definition of the gifts in order f- to allow for certain gifts to continue. Yes, good. Um, and so, uh, yeah. So I think I think that is. And the sixteen eighty nine, like the others, does make it clear as well that it it views that there is a cessation of those uh, of revelation. Yeah, and the revelation later in particular. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, totally. Now, you know, what you've just pointed out there is huge because I think, again, now we're on a very, very pointed track in that, you know, we're not talking even about some gifts having ceased. We're talking about revelation. We're talking about, you know, the, the way in which God has revealed himself to us, you know? And then, and then mm-hmm. yeah, absolutely. It, it sort of shifts the whole conversation to, the redefinite, uh, re, uh, no, no one's even talking and worrying about gifts, so to speak. It's more just 
uh, the redefinition of of gifts. It's, it, that's where the battle lies. Or um, you know, because everyone agrees, everyone who is basically conservative, Calvinistic, Protestant, they're all going to agree that you know cessationism is true. You know, so now it's just a battle for what. What what happens when we feel like perhaps that thing was a prophecy or a word of knowledge? Or, yeah. You know, what do we call yeah. that? And and what was the impact of that? Um, you know, that, they have to reckon with that, even as we do. You know, that's it's not even a cessationist Absolutely. burden. You know, that's that's what I'm trying to convey. Um, yeah. And and so I, I like to just put that on the table because I think that gets lost. Yeah. So if we just assume, for the purposes of this conversation, yeah. that we're talking about reformedish groups yes who are continuationist and so we're not having to fight battles that are fundamental about mm-hmm. the nature of scripture and that kind of thing and mm-hmm. um, because some charismatic groups at least at a functional level um do do not live according to the scriptures as the highest authority True. but live according to nations yeah um and i mean like a classic example of this is we were at, with a couple of friends uh, who go to a very prominent church here in the UK uh-huh. and the whole church's kind of direction and vision was set by the church leader's vision of a pair of running shoes. Nice. So they basically like restructured the whole, they, they dropped certain ministries. They started new ministries all because of a vision of a pair of running shoes. Mm. And the interpretation that went along with that. You got to run. And so you got to run the race. You got to run the race. I mean, there's a Bible verse, but <laughs> like, yeah, but you see, that's a classic example. But it wasn't, it wasn't the verse read in context through exegetical preaching. Um, mm. It was the vision that mm. determined the direction. And so at the very least, it's being held functional level according to the same authority. Mm. And mm. so like the 1689 says, uh, in paragraph six of article one, uh, the whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own faith in life is either expressly set down or necessarily contained in the Holy scripture unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelation of the spirit or traditions, and so that's in a nutshell what we're what we're saying is yeah, that totally. the, the scriptures scriptures are closed canon, and so we don't add anything to it. Yeah, and you know, and on that point, another way to approach the cessationist continuationist debate that I found to be incredibly helpful, um, maybe just to take a step back for one second, and you think about the four point slash five point Calvinist debate, right? Unlimited atonement, unlimited atonement. Um, you mean the Calvinist versus non-Calvinist debate? Well, you know, let, uh, let's 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 get technical and say the Calvinist versus Emeraldian debate. Okay, I'm happy right. to do that. Um, well, okay, let me let me actually step back further than that because it might even be more helpful for my purposes of illustration to think about just a straight up Arminian scenario versus a Calvinist scenario, um, okay. where where often the debate, you know, moves around God's sovereignty and freedom of will, you know. And, you know, you bring it to the atonement, like it, it's often the atonement should be at the front and center of that debate, 
but it becomes kind of the backdoor argument that actually ends up being the most helpful, I think, because the, the Armenian Calvinist debate often degenerates to a, a very philosophical, you know, it, can God be sovereign? Can we have free will? Just really floating mm-hmm. around the metaphysics of it all and, and not really landing on anything exegetical or concrete. And then you come in from the atonement angle and you say, well, listen, are we willing to say that Jesus died for our sins? You know, uh, which everyone all of a sudden is a lot more lucid on. We're just, yeah, we want to say that. Absolutely. We want to sing about it. We want to thank God for it. And, and then and then it's just a matter of going, okay, so in what sense can that be true? You've really only got one of two options uh, when you're thinking about this Calvinist Arminian thing. Uh, either you got to go for a moral government theory, you know, as all Arminians have now done from the time of, you know, uh, pretty much you know, Miley, uh, Orton Wiley at least, uh, onwards. Um, and or, or you've got to go for a substitutionary, you know, satisfaction theory that Calvinists hold to, whereas Jesus died for your sins. Uh, and that that's going to that's gonna affect the whole thing, really, at the end of the day. If, if Jesus died for your sins, then he must have died for, a few, uh, for people that he knew uh, w- would be saved and would, you know, that, that satisfaction would, would, would um, be all that they needed. And, and and I've just found that like that tends to lock people down and go, oh, well, actually, oh, well, if that's the thing, then, uh, yeah, forget. I mean, I can work out the freedom sovereignty thing in a million different ways. Uh, but the thing I'm not willing to compromise on is the cross and substitution. And so it just makes the whole thing a lot more lucid. Now, where I'm going with that is that, you know, you come in with this um, cessationist continuationist debate. And often that the equivalent backdoor, the atonement, so to speak, is this issue of the sufficiency of scriptures uh, or the, um, you know, where, where it is that you uh, will have your conscience bound. The power of the doctrine of the sufficiency of scripture is that you, you are essentially saying what the, they said at the Reformation, that we no longer want, want our consciences bound to the doctrines of men or the teachings of men, traditions of men or superstitions where we are now you know, really standing with Luther, I suppose, you know, uh, as he as he stood there and and, and declared uh, his conscience was was bound to the word of God alone. And and mm-hmm. uh, we think that's right. And we think that's good. It sort of, it sort of gets to the Protestant ethic, I suppose, that very heartbeat of it. And um, and so, you know, I found that people are not willing to compromise on that. They're like, yeah, totally. You know, we don't want to have our consciences bound to superstitions and traditions of men. And then but if that's true, then then all of a sudden you've got to work that out at a practical level with regards to cessationism and continuationism. And, and yeah, I've just found that once that sort of, that lucid angle is grasped properly, um, then, you know, people are not so quick to go to scriptures where Paul, you know, speaks to the, the, the Thessalonians, for example, telling them to not despise prophecies, but have, uh, but be bound to, in the Greek, be bound to, that which is true. So in other words, Paul is saying, listen, mm-hmm. you know, don't despise prophecies. I want you, I want you to do them, go for it. But when, when something has been declared, you know, assessed as true, then bound, bind yourselves to that prophecy in the same way that we today would think of ourselves as binding ourselves only to the word. Uh, that was the word at that point. That yeah. was the canon being progressively revealed. So Paul could say that and should have said that. And that's why prophecies were not to be yeah. despised. It's like us despising the, the yeah. Bible. And um, and so, yeah, I mean, like, you see, and I just find you get that, and then people are like, oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. I, I don't want to use that as a, as a proof text anymore 
for having prophecy around today because I'm not willing to go through with it and bind myself to that truth. You know, um, my conscience is bound yeah. to the word alone. Uh, yeah, no, I think I think that's exactly right. Because I think uh, you know, as I did, uh, you know, a lot of people get hung up on the fact. Well, where does it say in the Bible that the gift cease? Yeah, yeah, that's usually the opening lines. Whole thing. Yeah, yeah, and it's just. Um, like it just doesn't say, you know, his thing is it just doesn't say anywhere in the Bible that yeah. the gifts are going to cease. And, and, and so, so the, what would you say is the follow-up response, the best follow-up response for that? Well, I mean, I think, um, yeah, I mean, there are, there are a number of, of levels. I just, I think I am deeply, first of all, deeply sympathetic to that because yeah. I think at the level of systematic theology mm-hmm. and at the level of kind of, dogmatic theology you have you have to it has to touch ground at an exegetical level mm, you know mm. so i i i do think that asking the simple question does the bible say this is generally speaking a good rule of thumb for discerning whether or not someone's system um is is going out of out of line so mm. the whole uh, arminian thing mm-hmm. which is you know, hinges on this idea of prevenient grace, this mm-hmm. kind of blanket of grace that covers the whole world, mm-hmm. bringing people and all of Arminianism hinges on All right. Well, if you're listening in on this, you'll, uh, you'll notice that Andre's Wi-Fi has gone a little bit buggy. The reason for that is we're, we're actually connecting... We're creating a Wi-Fi signal by by rubbing twigs together. That's uh, where we're attaching our Wi-Fi signal to a car battery <laughs> and trying to spark it off by manual labor, rubbing twigs together. And and who would have thought we'd get this far, right? I mean, this is amazing. We've we, we're on the air. We've created a signal. So sorry for the Wi-Fi delays and the weird robotic sounds. Uh, fiber is coming, people. But until then, we've got twigs, and I'm turning them, and we've got fire. So keep going, Andre. Oh, I was just, I was, I was, I was monologuing. I was in the zone. <laughs> well, you, you, you were out, bro. We, we did not hear you at all. You were gone. Okay, um, let's go. But uh, yes, yeah, so you were saying, um, you know, well, just okay, yeah. This might spark off your monologue again. But um, you know, I, I asked, what, what is the opening? Um, you know, if they say, well, it's not there in the Bible, you're saying, yeah, that's a good. I can empathize with that. But I suppose my follow-up question immediately is. What, what is the Bible? Because you have to answer that in a way that is not in the Bible. You know, you have to use, yeah, yeah, yeah. A, yeah. You have to use a different way to answer that. And I've, I think that the question that was asked requires that same sort of extra category of answer. Um, you need to, the, essentially, if we're asking where the gifts have ceased, it's like, it's, it's, if, it's you know, we'd have to deny that prophecy was a gift used by God to give us the scripture to get out of the implication that we need to, you know, uh, answer the question of how we get the Bible itself to be able to get to the bottom of of the gifts thing. Um, and so, yeah, it's just like, okay, uh, you want to know where it is in the Bible? I want to know how you get to the Bible. Like, what is the Bible? You know, you have to answer that. So actually, that's another great thing to talk about. You know, you just sort of go straight into the doctrine of canonicity. And I've to date, right? This is something, honestly, if everything from who's that guy, Dennis Rodman, that crazy Pentecostal sort of uh, three volume charismatic guy, all Dennis the way Rod- through to. Rodman. Isn't he a bot? 
I don't know. I might have got his name wrong. But yeah, whatever. I mean, he's just, I think he was at Regent. And he was like the only guy who ever put a uh, Pentecostal systematic uh, theology out. But then even Grudem, I mean, they've just got very, very weak, yeah. weak canonicity. You know, their, their doctrines of canonis, uh, canon essentially are just, well, you know, Dennis Rodman, if that's him, all right, Dennis Rodman is the basketball guy. I think he does. <laughs> yeah, name. I'm pretty sure. He's- yeah. But anyways, um, the Rodman guy, whoever that is. Um, I mean, he didn't even have a doctrine of canon. He left it out. <laughs> and he's got a three-volume yeah. systematic. He just didn't know how to do it because of his um, his uh, doctrine of, of prophecy. And so at the end of the day, like you look at Grudem, who's probably the most balanced of them all on this. Uh, man, I mean, I don't know if you've read his section on canonicity. It's 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 terrible. And so, you know, at the end of the day, you you just this is going to be a thing. I've never yet spoken to a charismatic guy, and I might be proven wrong in the in, in the future. But I would love to know, genuinely love to know, how they get to their doctrine of canon. You know, how do they, how they how yeah. they even hold their Bibles in their hand when they ask me the question? Uh, you know, where is it in yeah. the Bible? So if 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 you're saying that the gift of prophecy in in the Bible is the same as what is typically referred to as the gift of prophecy today. Yeah. Which is a kind of, I feel that the Lord is saying to you, you are going to be a missionary in China, mm-hmm. you know, next year. Yeah. And it's a kind of take it, use it, don't use it. Uh-huh. Um, it's up to you kind of thing. It might happen. It might not happen. It's up to you to test it. Mm-hmm. Um, if that was prophecy in uh, the Bible, Old and New Testament, mm-hmm. um, then there is no there is no assurance that what we have in the Bible is trustworthy. Oh, totally. Be- because if if Isaiah and the boys were going around doing what <laughs> you get in in popular charismatic circles today, yeah. man, then it's just like, okay, I don't believe any of that because, yeah, yeah that's the, I mean, cause you know, you know, from back in the day, it was hit and miss, man. You know, like you just got that's up, you had some sort of feeling or inclination. Yeah. You spoke it out. You just threw it out there. You could, you could do that because it was up to the other person to test it, not you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, so there is that the, mm-hmm. like the, at a, at a purely logical level, uh, um, it just doesn't work at a at a doctrinal level. Um, it's like you say, um, you have to not only look at what the Bible says about the gifts. You have to look at what it says about the Bible, mm. and then you have to do that. But it is, you know, what I was monologuing about was that I'm sympathetic to the idea of of saying, well, where does it say it in the Bible? I think that's generally speaking a good rule of thumb. Sure. But you have to you have to acknowledge that at some points the Bible testifies to concepts that aren't explicitly mentioned in the Bible, mm. and the one that we keep going back to as an example of this is the Trinity. Mm. Um, so uh, you know, at some point, Christians have to uh, use the Bible responsibly in that sense, not mm. just a kind of an oversimplified reading of the Bible where if there's not a proof text verse, then yeah. I. I won't yeah. believe it. If there is a proof text verse, I will believe it because either way, you're in danger of going wrong there. Mm. Um, and also, just know, to, we, sorry, just to just to get in there on that one, um, you know, th- the thing is also, you know, that opening, that opening sort of rebuttal there would be less to to 
kind of argue that there is no proof text in the Bible for cessationism, but it's more just more just to set the playing field again and just to just to remember the, the perspective that everyone needs. Because you know, I would argue I would argue that the proof text for cessationism really would be anything of any kind of prophet that says, thus saith the Lord, right? That would just be the, yeah. but the, it lacks its force until people understand why that matters, you know? And, and so you can go to any exegetical sort of passage. I mean, you can go to the New Testament prophet example. The only, only example we have in the New Testament of someone actually prophesying as a New Testament prophet, and he opens up with, thus saith the Holy Spirit. And I mean, yeah, you know, yeah. so there it is. There's the proof text right there. But to see why that matters, you see, because it comes back to what you were saying earlier in that you could either make the case that, um, you know, well, you could try. You could try to say, yeah, that's fine. I accept what you're saying insofar as um, the, you know, if it was the case that every single prophecy that we're talking about today was at the same level as the prophets of the Old Testament, uh, then we could see the problem. But typically the response is, Allegrudum or, or else where, you know, um, we, we're making a, a twofold division there. We're saying, we're saying there was a kind of inspired prophecy and then just this kind of other kind of uh, maybe the Lord maybe told me kind of prophecy. Yeah. And uh, little P, big P. So I'm just, my proof then exegetically would be to show that that cannot happen because there is no such distinction in the scripture. And, um, and yeah. so, but again, for that to matter, you need to see the playing field, at, at, you know, that we're in. So, but yeah, sorry to, to, to butt in there, but yeah, just, uh, I think that's kind of helpful as well. Yeah, ex- exactly. Um, and there are other proof texts, you know, that you can go to, you can talk about the foundation of the mm-hmm. apostles and prophets. You can go to Hebrews, um, one, which talks about in the past, God spoke in many ways, uh, through uh, in various ways through many prophets, but now he has spoken mm-hmm. by his son, <clears throat> uh, meaning that there is a finality of revelation in the son. And, mm-hmm. and, all, and then you go to, well, hang on, what were the apostles doing after Jesus had ascended? Well, mm. they were recalling yeah. supernaturally. The Spirit was bringing to mind, helping them to remember all that Jesus taught. So mm-hmm. they weren't actually adding any new revelation. They were simply remembering what Jesus taught, and he was the last or expounding, revelation. expounding what he, you know, they yeah, were revealing him, yeah. you know, at, exactly. at that fundamental apostolic level. Yeah. So, um, you know, the, and, you know, there's other people who have pointed out that, uh, you know, Paul, there seems to be a sort of change of tack in Paul's um, ministry where he, when he's handing over to Timothy, he seems to already kind of be telling him, or preparing him for an age without kind of mm, the miraculous, mm, mm. Um, and so that kind of thing you can you can see as he's handing over. There's a, there's a change in emphasis. It's all about the written word, all about the scriptures, mm-hmm. um, and so um, you know, and the, and the faith once for all delivered, the faith that was taught to him by you know, and so on and so forth. So there are places that you can go, and I think that's very very important actually, because mm. even though you might not see it at first glance. Um, again, I think the true test of any systematic idea, any dogmatic idea, is that it has to have some sort of touchstone in the scriptures. Like you have to be able to see it, but it just mm. you may have to approach some of that from the top down rather than from the bottom up. Mm. And um, and we just have to accept that's a reality for, yeah. um, for yeah. any orthodox Christian on any subject. Totally. And so um, a big objection you get here is that uh, there are these different kinds of prophecy. Right. right. So that's how Grudem 
maintains some degree of canonicity yeah. and has prophecy is because uh, he says that it's a different, it, the gift changes in the new covenant. Yeah. And I just, I think that um, when you realize that that is literally the only thing that can hold this together, that argument, and yeah. then you go to the scriptures, and then as you say, you see Agabus, the only example of a New Testament prophet, and he's no by no means speaking with any less authority. Um, he Do you is know what's crazy saying, about that? I remember being mind-boggled by, by the whole, you know, because he's going to Agabus as the, the primary example of the New Testament prophet. Uh, it, look, it'd be one thing if he was saying, listen, Agabus is just totally crazy. Let's not even worry about him. He needs to be written off as a bad prophet kind of thing, like not, not in any way exemplary. But, but that's not what he's saying at all. He says, um, and, and typically the argument goes, well, uh, Agabus got things wrong, okay? Therefore, this is a precedent for the kind of New Testament prophet, yeah. which is not infallible or just, you know, always to be taken at that pinpoint, you know, um, you know, accuracy Good measurement. Yeah. He, he's allowed to just do a little bit of a thing and get some of the details wrong. And, and he's big argument, a big thing centers on that. And then Agabus opens up with thus, thus saith the Holy Spirit, which the rest of Grudem's argument is we shouldn't say that because, you know, uh, we could get stuff wrong. So the one, the guy, the guy that that is the exemplar paradigm is the guy that you are not to say. And I mean, you know, don't don't open like that. But you know, if essentially he's also arguing that Agabus said nothing wrong there, and it's just, I mean, that is just very bad. That's like a very bad argument right there. That's that's messed up in every way. Firstly, Agabus got nothing wrong. Uh, he's uh, assessing prophecy in such a bizarre way at that point. I mean, then by his assessment of Agabus's prophecy, none of the, the prophets in the Old Testament got anything right at all. And, you know, the whole thing is actually talking about some other Jesus still to come, you know. Uh, there's, there's that, you know, which is not a small thing at all. And then the other <laughs> thing is, is like, besides that whole thing, I mean, if you just look at your basic, you know, hermeneutical approach to, okay, let, let's ask what the word, let's look at the semantic greater lexical domain of the word prophet, you know. Um, let's work it out. From Genesis, here we go. Okay, prophet does this. Prophet's an organ of revelation. God, uh, you know, requires certain things from a prophet. It's good prophets, bad prophets, true prophets, false prophets. And, you know, just work it, keep working it through all the way to the point where you get to, like, the New Testament. I mean, you, you are honestly required at that point to bring in a funda fundamental level of continuity in your understanding of what the word means. So you would you would need something significant to say now everything has changed and everything that's been set up set up in terms of this semantic domain of understanding of what a prophet is uh, now gets radically altered to the point that you know that you get to what we've uh, what they've argued for in the modern charismatic usage of the term. Uh, and, and he knows that. He feels the burden of that. So you know where he goes? He goes to the early church literature. Uh, and, and what you have at that point is, is really a breaking of the analogy of faith. I mean, you know, Scripture interprets Scripture. Uh, we, we are not to give that level of precedent to something outside of Scripture to interpret Scripture, especially when we're widening out the, the, the concept of a prophet. He's using first century literature where they sometimes used it in a more loose sense and uh, sometimes got things wrong and that sort of thing to read back into the New Testament 
and f- crank open that semantic demand so that now we can allow for two yeah. kinds of profits. I mean, that is very bad hermeneutics. You do that on any other doctrine, you're going to be a heresy in a matter of se- a, a heretic, at least in a matter of seconds. And uh, yeah. you know, I that that's what and makes we also know like that the the uh, the early church is not an easy nut to crack. Oh, I mean, it's not like the early church is one thing. You know, mm. it's just it's so diverse, and and there, like you say, there is lots of error in the early church. We shouldn't exalt it as some kind of golden period in church theology. Definitely oh, man. not. Especially not to you know do something of such a you know. I mean, what he's trying to do there is exegetically significant, you know, but he's not using yeah. the word to do it. The kind of thing that you would you would really demand his final piece of argument to come from the word to make that kind of forceful claim on, mm-hmm. on the semantic domain mm-hmm. of, the, of the term. So, yeah, I mean, you know, it, I remember going through it and thinking, this is crazy. I mean, we, we just can't go along with this. This is, there's nothing here. Not to even to mention the Granville Sharp thing and, uh, you know, the prophets and apostles. I mean, that's all flawed. He's not, he's not using that rule correctly. You know, you got the plural nouns. And so the, you're, you're referring to the rule in Greek that if you have a noun followed by a an and followed by another noun it's referring to the, the same thing yeah which we get from but the christology it only works sorry so lord and christ you know as in that becomes one person he is the lord yeah. christ right but right. the only ever we only the only reason we get that rule is because of the singular nouns yeah not plural there's no, no instance of that being used in any kind of plural groupings or yeah. plural nouns. And and obviously with apostles and prophets, you know, that doesn't then apply. You can't, you know, yeah, fine, it does talk about apostles, Kai, prophets, but, you know, at the end of the day, the, the Granville Sharp rule that we usually use in our Christology and the gram- grammar there cannot be applied. So, you know, he's taken a leap there. And that just, that's really the foundation. Without yeah. that, I mean, he's got nothing. And there is just literally yeah. nothing to the argument at all. As um, Packer said, you know, for the for the baptism as a second event, you know, Pentecostal idea, you know, it's just linguistically baseless. There's no, you know, there's yeah. no substance yeah. there in terms of the I argument. I mean, it, it's probably worth noting, though, that for the average continuationist, yeah. it's that what we would consider to be prophecy, they are not doing. Right. That's a great point. I tell you what, let's let because that would work so well for us to talk about on on sixteen eighty nine Saturday, where we can actually look at this from from that perspective. Like, what do we do with those experiences as someone who does operate in a confessional basis? Right. Okay. Should we do that? I mean, we're pretty much at a wrap on this one anyway. Um, so if, if you're listening to this and you're interested in the discussion, uh, leapfrog over Friday and uh, meet us again on Saturday, and we'll talk this through. Uh, more from that perspective, like what what about those experiences that are not necessarily uh, in opposition to any doctrine of canon? What do we do with them as those who are cessationists and really as those who hold to a confession? Um, thanks, bro. Appreciate it. No worries. Mm-hmm.